Father, we do pray that you would reveal your glory to us in the face of your Son, on the page of Scripture, all of it given to us so that we might know you through him. Help us as we, we come to the book of Genesis now, as we pick up where we left off to discern how it is that this story and these stories within this story help us to know our need and help us to know our great Savior in Jesus. Father, preaching is how you have, in your wisdom and according to your plan, decided that we would come to know Jesus through your word. You gave us more than a written word. You gave us the written word, but you gave us a vehicle by which it would be given to the people, by which we would hear it weekly, and that is through preaching. And so I pray for help as I open your word to preach it now that these would not be mere words, but that your spirit would activate them in the hearts of every hearer, even in my own as I hear the word preached, to believe these things and to see Christ here. And we pray that as we give ourselves to this simple, repeated, oratory, almost hour-long work every week, that some, even many, would come to confess Christ as Lord, even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 14. Our text will be chapters 12, chapter 12, verse 10 through the end of 14 today, but we'll start here in chapter 14, verse 17. Based on what many of you or your children or grandchildren were wearing in my feeds over the weekend, as we have reminded ourselves, it is graduation weekend, a weekend that marks the completion of, for many of you, a winding journey. It occurs to me, now a dad of kids maybe 10 years out from going to college, that it is a graduation not just for students, but for parents, a weekend that perhaps didn't almost happen multiple times. A weekend capped off with lofty words and an important graduation speaker. Well, today's text covers roughly three chapters in the book of Genesis, but we'll begin with a kind of graduation here at the close of this section, a high point in the life of the man who will come to be known as Abraham, now Abram. One of many high points to come. In this instance, a high point capping off a segment of his journey and accompanied with some lofty words by an important speaker. Let's read together. Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat at Kedolamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went to meet him at the valley of Sheva that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Well, the last week's message was titled, I Will. God came to Abraham with a call and a command to go, and with many promises, he loaded Abram up. I will, I will, I will. I will make you a great nation. I will give you this land. I will make your name great. Well, the title of this message is, They Will Kill Me. Some message titles are descriptive. They function uh, to tell you what's in the sermon. Some are cryptic. This one may be a little more cryptic. We'll come into its full meaning by the sermon's end, or at least along the way. Well, who will kill Abram? And what is he going to do about it? Why is he so afraid? Is he afraid? We shall see. Abram's story has taken on, will take on some complexity before the morning is over. We'll get there. But for now, we've begun by reading an excerpt from the end of this section of three chapters. Chapters 12, verse 10 through the end of 14. We've just landed at the end of 14. Abram has apparently been at war and he has come out on top. Here he is approached by two kings. One king from a place called Sodom, which will take on more meaning as the story of Genesis unfolds. It's a shady place. This king is indebted to Abram for saving some of his men, and he attempts to negotiate with Abram for his men back. Keep the things that you've taken, Abram. I'll take my men. Abram is noble and gives them back all without repayment. The other king is a mysterious figure from a place called Salem, almost surely Jerusalem. It means peace, a fitting conclusion to a period of, of battle. He speaks a blessing on Abram, and this blessing marks the conclusion of a section, a kind of a graduation moment for Abram, this warrior king. Well, this would have been hugely encouraging to witness and to hear for the first readers of this text, Israel, having come out of Egypt and headed into the promised land. Here is a high priest from within that land who recognizes the blessing of God on Abram and God's hand in Abram's success to bring it about. Even generations later to hear this man from that pre-Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Salem, offer this blessing and to see God's hand in the story even from those early days as he knits the whole thing together. But apparently the the Lord wanted them, those original hearers, and for us to have more than Abram's high points. And this is a good thing for us. He wants us also to have the complicated backstory. We get more than this climactic moment in the life of Abram, the war hero. We get the backstory. We witness the durability of the promise of God firsthand unfolding before us. And we watch the maturity of Abram's faith in that that promise come about. 
In the stories that take place between chapters 12 and 14, we witness the durability of the promise on display. I have an iPhone in my pocket here. Uh, You buy these things, and you better buy a case. Uh, They're not so durable. They're about as durable as they can get for what they are. Actually, they're pretty durable, but they won't take a drop to the cement at the wrong angle. And so you research, which case should I get? Uh, You know, some cases are better than others. Well, I found this cool case by a brand I think is called Moose, and they apparently dropped the case off of a 40-foot crane. And the, the, the iPhone succeeded. Now, I don't know how many times they did that, and I don't know if they dropped it and it broke, and then they dropped it again and it didn't break. But in any case, there's a little video you can watch where people take this and they chuck it on the ground and they throw it against trees, and then they drop it from a crane, and the phone survives. There's some kind of amazing technology inside this uh, millimeter or two or three thick barrier between the iPhone and the cement. It's durable. And there are tests to its durability that I have witnessed. Satisfaction guaranteed or my money back. The thing with with Christianity, the thing with following Jesus, the thing for Abraham about following God's call to go is that you lose your life. You give it all up. And you don't find out if it's for real until you die. You get that? We have to pass through death to see it all. And so we hang on to a promise. And God wants us to watch the promise tested, under fire, dropped from a 40-foot crane, so that we might trust it. We get more than a high point in Abram's life, a war hero uh, at his height or at one moment of height. We get the back story. We get the war story, if you will. The backstory is arranged by three threats, three threats that test the durability of the promise. There are other things going on in each of these stories, but this is what is happening in the big picture as it unfolds. Three threats who test the durability of the promise and whose outcomes strengthen the durability of our faith. We will even watch Abram, who in faith went out uh, at God's command, believing the promise. We will watch his faith fail and we will watch it begin to mature. And so we find ourselves on the pages of Scripture relating with him on his bad days and, by God's grace, relating with him on his better days. One threat arises from within the land, a conflict from within the land. One threat emerges from within a conflict over the land, and a final threat swirls all about the land. Three threats, as we'll see, that persist one form or another to this day. We'll begin with threat number one, uh, fear. Threat number one is fear, Abram's fear. What was Abram afraid of and how did that threaten the promise? We'll begin in verse 10. Abram is in the land of promise. How is it going? Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. Mm, So not that great. God says, leave everything and go to this land, and it doesn't provide food. I was at a really nice, a really nice coffee shop uh, this last week, and they, <laughs> they ran out of mugs. I'd like to buy a cup of coffee. We're out of mugs. So they gave me, they gave me this paper thing, which is just fine, but that's, at this coffee shop, you don't get your coffee in a paper thing. You get it in a mug. So you had one job, coffee shop. Make me a cup of coffee, put it in a mug. 
Well, you had one job, land, provide some food. It's not a flan flowing with milk and honey if there ain't no food in the land. There's no food in the land. There's a famine in the land. So what did Abraham do about it? So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. Reasonable enough. It wasn't just Abraham's stomach. It was a severe famine. Abraham went where he could get a meal. There's no indication here that going to Egypt was problematic. But there is an indication that how Abram went to Egypt was problematic. He went without consulting the Lord. And oh, how easy it is to go about life and parenting and work and and school without consulting the Lord. We make reasonable decisions. We kind of add everything up and we, we make a call and we go for it. And often enough, those calls are good. This is a good call. He's hungry. His people are hungry. Get out of here and get some food. He had plans to come back, we can imagine. We're all very good functional pragmatists, just like Abram, though. The problem is that we might get too good, like Abram, at problem-solving on our own. And that's what happened to him. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, another problem occurred to him. He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Where is he going with this? <laughs> Verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. But we can't have that. Abram is street smart. Right before he gets into Egypt, he says, time out. I, uh, so I, I can imagine this happening. You, you're, you are beautiful. You're beautiful. And they're going to they're gonna know it just as I do. They're going to kill me. They're going to take you. How's he going to address this problem? Verse 13, um, go ahead and say you're my sister, that it will go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. How nice of him. <laughs> um, so you just go ahead and tell him you're my sister, and then it'll all work out. So this is an example of what not to do, folks. Do not try to help God by, doing, by helping God out in your sin. Do not help God fulfill his promises by lying. Do not try to accomplish God's purposes with clearly human solutions. Those of you in business, wherever you find yourself, will have untold options, buttons to click, things to say, maneuvers to make that are being made around you all about that are a functional lying, deception. Deception is a means of providing for yourself. God does not need your help and your lies to provide for you. There may be some industries so corrupt that you cannot make it, honestly. Get another job. This is what not to do. By all means, think ahead, but don't try to solve your problems apart from prayer and the promises of God. When you're afraid, don't trust in yourself, but in, in the Lord. And sometimes that means making a hard call. Stepping into a situation with a degree of uncertainty into one that you're not in control of. We're reminded in this moment of Abram's story that God did not come to a righteous man like he came to Noah. You remember, he came to Noah, a righteous man. Noah wasn't without sin. Certainly in the end, there's a really embarrassing moment of his where he's naked in a tent with a bottle, a tent in a bottle, with a bottle, and, um, and that's terribly embarrassing. It's not that he was without sin before God came to him, but the accent in the Noah's story is on his obedience. Noah was a righteous man in an age of violence. God came to him. Everything God said, Noah did exactly as God commanded. 
Noah did exactly as God commanded. Noah did exactly as God commanded. Noah went in the boat. God wiped out the earth. Noah comes off the boat, commands Noah to fill the earth. Noah sins and his descendants, it was a mess. We have the Tower of Babel, humanity with the same old sin problem coming together to make a name for themselves. God did not come to a righteous man. God came to Abram. He came to a man and he made him righteous by faith, as we'll see. And we see that this man has some pagan in him. He's still solving problems the old, the old way. How did it go for Abram? Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Aha, just as Abram expected, Sarai must also be pretty, pretty. She was about 65, by the way. Our best guess is that for some of these patriarchs, the aging process was simply slower in adulthood. Here, it's not just Abram saying it, but it's the Egyptians saying it. So they see that she's beautiful. But Abram had this all taken care of. Since he's not a husband, he's not a threat, so they won't kill him. He expects they'll try to negotiate with him, and he'll cross that bridge when he gets there. Unless he meets these guys, verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, (laughs) they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Here is something that he did not expect to happen. Next to being killed, this is about the worst thing that could have happened. His wife is now gone. He's alone. To make things worse, verse 16, for her sake, he dealt, with, he dealt well with Abram, that is Pharaoh. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So they didn't kill him, but instead they showered him with gifts and wealth. He takes them without a word. He's either happy and unconflicted about receiving them, or he's profoundly conflicted about receiving them. Great, you have my wife. I'll take all of this. Here I am, trying to solve God's problems through human means, and he has made a bit of a mess. This is an internal threat. This This problem is not a problem of famine In the land, that's a problem that will resolve itself in time as God keeps his promise. But it's a problem of famine in the man himself, Abram, who's received the promise. He has believed, but apparently his faith in God's promise has not purified him from all conflictive motives or every ounce of Adam left in the man. He is faithless in the moment. His faith is tested as it will be again. Perhaps this was good for Israel to see happen, like when you grow up and your father is always on a pedestal, and then you get some of the backstory and how the man was made, and you relate with him in a different way. Not only do you have a father to look up to and to model after, but you have a story that is not unlike your own. You get the, the how. And you can relate, which is why verse 17 and following is so encouraging. How will Abram get out of this pickle? Because we have this available to ourselves as well. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. To the rescue, the Lord, Abram's wife, uh, that is Sarai. Verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, 
What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Human initiative has threatened the promise, but the Lord performs a dramatic intervention. And through plagues, a confrontation, and the deployment of soldiers, Abram will find himself back in the land. But not without layers of instructive irony. In the garden, God called to Adam, where are you? What is this you have done? And here Pharaoh calls to Abram, God's man, and says, what have you done? Why did you do this? Abram ordered his wife to say she was his sister. Pharaoh orders his men to take her and Abram away. Who gives better orders? Adam was sent out of the garden and here Abram is sent out of Egypt back into the land. Get back in God's place, Abram. How instructive for Israel in terms of the geographical movement. She could see herself in Abram's story. The Lord brought him out of Egypt into the land through mighty wonders, including plagues on Pharaoh's house. This movement out of Egypt will happen again, and it will happen again, and it will happen again throughout the Bible's story, so that you're looking for a movement out of Egypt with salvation attending. The first threat tests the durability of God's promise, and it stands The outcome strengthens the durability of our faith. The first threat emerged from a problem from within the land, ultimately within the man. The second threat emerges in a conflict over the land. Threat number two, family strife. Family strife. This is all of chapter 13. The first threat, an internal threat, now an interpersonal conflict. Abram and Lot were headed now back into the land with all their stuff. They came back to where it all started, to Bethel, and they had an altar there. Now, Abram was very rich, verse 2, in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He's doing well. He's worshiping the Lord. He's back in the land. Abram is in the right place, and he and Lot are doing well for themselves before the Lord, and they're doing well for themselves. But they are not doing well together. Verse 6. The land could not support both of them dwelling together. Verse 7, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock at the time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So the land is partially occupied and there's not quite enough room for these guys and all their stuff and the herdsmen are getting in little fights and the two are having to get together and figure out what went wrong and who did what. We all understand this. Kids, you understand this. If you have a brother or sister that you room with, I had a room with my brother Drew. One side was clean, the other was messy. I honestly don't remember which side was clean and which one was messy. And it's all relative with kids. We each had our own things, our own posters, and that led to some conflict and eventually a split. And I got my own room and he got his own room. In fact, it occurs to me, a memory. A memory occurs to me after 30 years, maybe more than that. Uh, 
It was hard for me. I think my brother initiated the split (laughs) because I think I was down. I think I felt betrayed. I think I missed my brother. This is what actually happened. So maybe I was the messy one. I don't know. In any case, we can thank mom for resolving the matter. Well, Abram and Lot are in each other's space and Lot's tent's probably a mess. He doesn't keep his herdsmen in order. They're picking fights. Someone's giving someone trouble. What will Abram do? Verse eight. When Abram said to Lot, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and between my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go right. If you take the right hand, then I will go left. Sounds fair enough, enough, a nice solution. Abram is clearly not a domineering or manipulative or forceful figure. But if you have an eye to God's promise, you may spot a problem. As you clip across the story here, the land is at issue. Abram's job is not just to get along with family and manage these relationships. Abram's job is not just to make a living. Abram's job is to move into the land, and he's offering the land to Lot. One way takes you in, and one way puts you right on the outside. If Lot chooses the land then Abram has just forfeited the land promise, at least temporarily. If Lot chooses the Jordan Valley, then Abram is just separated from his only heir from the land. Remember, his wife is barren. He's to have a whole nation. This is his nephew, his heir in line. Hold that tension for a moment while we watch which Lot chooses. Or as importantly, how will Lot choose? Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. An ominous note that sets up future trouble. How did Lot make his decision? Well, Lot lifted up his eyes. He surveyed the land and its contents and its contours with his eyes and he chose the Jordan Valley to his eyes based on what he saw with his eyes this was the better choice but the life of faith is not lived by what we see verse 14 the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him lift your eyes and look from the place where you are Northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So here Abram is now headed into the land of Canaan, occupied as it is, not as attractive as the land in the other direction. 
but God will give it all to him as sure as his promise. I will, I will, I will, we hear again, and Abram worships. And we've learned an important lesson about faith, that the plan of God is not always plain to our eyes, that the promise of God is not even always appealing immediately to our eyes, but the eyes of faith believe the bare word of God as Abram has. And in this moment, maybe a kind of a lapse, maybe a degree of indifference, maybe Abram is counting on the Lord, sorting it all out and getting him into the land where Lot to have chosen Canaan instead. It's not terribly clear. But the eyes of faith will see what the Lord has promised as the path. And there is a contrast here between Lot and Abram and how they're seeing what they're seeing with their eyes. Friends, Nancy Lowe saw with the eyes of faith. I hope you knew Nancy Lowe, our beloved sister who died yesterday. And as you know, she lost one of her eyes. Uh, Cancer pressed on the back of her eye. It had to be removed. And yet she saw with the eyes of faith. She saw saw things more clearly than, than I see, than... You might have said this to yourself, then you can see if you visited with, with Nancy ever to speak with her. It is as though the things happening to her body were not actually happening to her body. <laughs> it was as though she was staring in the face of Jesus. She believed his words. And, and heaven was more real to her than, her than her bed, which was real to her. And she couldn't move from easily or much in the last days. Her home, her life, her bed did not look like the promises of God. They were Canaanites or cancer in the land, if you will. Oh, but she looked forward to the heavenly city and this Lord's day. Our sister passed away just yesterday. This Lord's day, it's hers. She's arrived. And so you and I stare at some pretty dark things ahead of us, some pretty scary things, with quite a bit of uncertainty, humanly speaking, Death, humanly speaking, presents us with a tremendous uncertainty, an obstacle no one can mount, and yet we can stare through it, believing the promises of God, that there is a land, that there is a heavenly city, even the one that Abraham was looking forward to through the land. Oh, let us look with the eyes of faith. Well, the first threat was internal, arising from a threat in the land. Abram concocted a human scheme and the Lord The Lord intervened, sent the plagues, got him back in the land. The second threat was interpersonal, emerging from a conflict over the land. There's turmoil. How is this going to go? And then Abram offers the land to his his nephew. Surely from story one, we'll know that God will get Abram into the land and, and settled there. But how is this going to go? Lot chooses the Jordan Valley. Abram heads in with the restated promises of God. I will, I will. I will, against all that he might see with the inhabitants there, not even enough space for Lot and Abram to dwell together that Abram has to come up with this solution of why don't you leave or I leave. It is inhabited. But this interpersonal conflict presents us with another threat. And the Lord behind in the details in this case ensured the land for Abram and restated his promise. Now another threat, an international threat. More parties are involved with each step. 
An international threat swirling all about the land. Threat number three, international war. This is chapter 14. Well, in chapter 14, the story opens up from the life of Abram to the whole world. Maybe not the whole world, but the world around him. If you look down at your page, you're going to see paragraphs of the names of kings and places. This may well be an excerpt from a record of of a, a war inscription inspired now, embedded in our scriptures. It's frankly, I have to say, humanly speaking, a profoundly terrible read. Uh, so let me explain it. Let me explain it. In the ancient world was mapped out. The ancient world was mapped out by smaller and larger states and more and less powerful Kings, And here we have a record of a rebellion that took place where five petty states and their kings tried after 12 years of uh, servitude to rebel against their overlord state. Four overlord states covering places as modern as Iran, Iraq, and Turkey formulated a plan to expand their dominion and subdue these five petty kings and keep things in proper order order. The four kings led by King, uh, so I had it all written out how I'm supposed to say it on my other page. Cardalamer, I think, excuse me, set out with two objectives. The first objective was to dominate the Transjordan and Sinai, and the second was to put down these five kings. Their first objective was met Swiftly, And in verses 5 through 7, you can see an account of how that went. They went from here to here to here, and they defeated the enemy, and they defeated their enemy, and they put this down, defeated, defeated, defeat, is the message of those verses. They put down the kings in the Transjordan and Sinai. It was theirs, which left the five little kings cornered and unguarded. Verse 8 Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kerdelamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. All right, so there you've got it. Four kings against five. The four overlords with the one overlord leading, and then you've got five petty kings, and it doesn't go well for the five petty kings. Uh, They flee, and most of their people die in tar pits. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into those pits, and the rest fled into the hill country. So it's a scary world out there. And it's full of kings and people and armies and defeats and battle and oppression. All of this. What does all this have to do with Abram? Except that this was the world that he lives in. The world that surrounded, frankly, that was inside the land. Well, verses 11 and 12 tell us that the conquerors took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. Wait, where was Lot living? (laughs) They took Lot and all his stuff. So now... Abram's nephew is swept up into this Middle Eastern conflict. There's always conflict over there. So now Abram's family is tangled up in this first recorded, if you will, world war. How does Abram find out? Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. 
These were allies of Abram. Abram had some allies, and they come and tell him what has happened. Your nephew, Lot, has been taken. And what is, Lot, what is Abram going to do about it? Protect himself in fear? Nope. Verse 14, when Abram heard that the kinsmen had been taken captive, his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, the most loyal, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So he hit the road. He's going to get Lot back. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the woman and the people. A spectacular, miraculous, military victory. This is Abram having learned some lessons on trusting the promises of God. For there were positive promises, you'll receive the land, but there were also negative promises that were positive for him. Namely, if anyone curses you, they're cursed. Abram will be safe. This is Abraham with a faith informed by the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. He is seeing straight with the eyes of faith here. God promised to curse those who cursed them. And so he can go to war with 318 men and put down the world's kings and get Lot. It's pretty incredible. And how encouraging this must have been for Moses' first hearers. They had only recently fled the armies of Egypt and they faced down the armies of Canaan. They weren't the first to come out of Egypt and they wouldn't be the first to face an imbalance of military might in the Bible story. But clinging to the promises of God by faith, they would prove him faithful to his word. Which brings us to Abram's encounter with this guy Melchizedek now. Melchizedek knows who stands behind Abram. He appears from Salem at the heart of Canaan, future Jerusalem, with a blessing in this speech. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram is aligned with the Lord of heaven and earth. If you possess heaven and earth, you're safe. Abram is aligned with the God of heaven and earth. And Abram is for that reason blessed. And this God of heaven and earth has come down and made a promise to Abram that those who are with Abram are safe. For God most high has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram knows it. And he hears it on the lips of this man who apparently knows it as well. This blessing on Abram is for all of us to hear. Friends, the Lord did not just neutralize these three threats. He utilized these threats as a mean to fulfill his promises and demonstrate that these promises depend wholly on him. Is that not what we take away from this? As we watch God make a promise and then we watch the winding story from here to the land, there's more to come. There is not a straight line from the promise of God to its fulfillment, but one crazy story after another, and we end up in the right place, and God would do this kind of thing again. He would do it again when one Hebrew baby was born at an inopportune time under the threat of death, 
Yet at a providential time, Moses' life and God's plan were not threatened by Pharaoh's order to kill the babies. In fact, the Lord would use that apparent threat to fulfill his plan and call his people out of Egypt. And he would do it again at the cross, friends. The nations raged about the Lord of glory as he hung there and the disciples all fled from fear. And Jesus didn't imagine that he might be killed and come up with a contingency plan. The Lord knew that he would be killed in that day and he stared it in the face. He prayed, the better Abraham. And if you were to lift your eyes to that cross, you would see defeat that day. You would see death and you would see the promises of God, the very promised one, killed. But with the eyes of faith, you and I, even today, see that God was utilizing all of this human initiative to bring about his promise in such a way that would prove, friends, salvation is of the Lord. Is this not proof to us that as God calls us to salvation and we believe his promise by faith, that it isn't because we were good, that it isn't because we had something to bring the table for God? That we were the kinds of people, just the right kind of person he needed for his plan. We are not just the right kind of people that he needs for his plan. He needs nothing for his plan. He will work it out. And here we have in the Abraham story, pickles, conundrums that the Lord saw through to see his promise fulfilled. And friends, as we look to the cross with the eyes of faith, now as we turn to the Lord's table, we consider that the body of Jesus was broken and the blood of Jesus was shed. That's called two signs that remind us of the death of a man. And yet as we consider the shed blood in this sign and the broken body of Jesus, we consider that in the very moment when things looked most glim and dark and when defeat seemed absolutely certain, as certain as death, God was, in fact, fulfilling his promises to save for himself a people, putting the sins of his people on Jesus so that through the propitiation of our sins, through the wrath of God taken and averted and put on Jesus, God could accept you and me into his presence. Because Jesus Christ himself, here's a pebble in the story, a breadcrumb in the story that will not be developed now, but that you can pick up the book of Hebrews and read, Jesus is himself a high priest after the order of this little man, Melchizedek, who shows up on the page. Jesus is a priest who, through the offering of his very life and his body and his blood, does not have to do it again. Jesus' blood and broken body covers all of our sins. And there isn't anything you can contribute to the payment of your sin, but an eternity under the wrath of God in hell. Jesus takes it all on the cross. So friends, we have before us the Lord's table, and I'd invite elders and deacons who will share in the distribution to join me up here. The Lord's table, let me remind you, is for those who belong to the Lord's kingdom, who have trusted in Jesus by faith, who with the eyes of faith look to the cross and don't see defeat, but see victory, who with the eyes of faith, like Abraham on his better day, look to the cross and then look to their death And know that they are safe because they have died with Christ and been raised with him to new life. 
And those who look to the cross and having joined themselves to Jesus belong to his people. This is a family meal. And I invite those of you who belong to his family to partake. If you're not a Christian this morning, if the cross is not for you, your only hope in life and in death, then it's your part this morning, God's will for you this morning, to watch us and, if you will, to pray and to seek out someone to speak with about these things after the service, how I would love to speak with you personally about the Lord Jesus and the gospel, the only gospel that can save. Uh, You might join us the next time we eat and drink together. For Christians, this is uh, always a moment of celebration and sober reflection. We are grateful for what Jesus has done for us in taking our sins, but we soberly reflect on all that it cost. And so we're instructed in 1 Corinthians to share in the Lord's table with sober examination. And so in a moment, we'll bow our heads and pray, confess our sins before the Lord, and prepare to share. The men will distribute the bread, and we'll share in that together, and then they'll distribute the cup, and I'll lead us in sharing in that together as well. Let's bow our heads in examination. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for showing us Christ in the preached word. And we give you thanks for this sign that you've given to us. You've given us more than something to hear, but you've given us something to to even to do in remembering Christ and in looking forward to his return. And so so as those who are joined to Jesus and joined to one another by, by faith, whose sins are removed because of the broken body of Jesus shed for us, uh, broken for us. We give you thanks for Jesus' death. In Jesus' name we pray these things.